Good morning, Alaska, and welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I am your host, Prentice Pemberton. As a therapist who works daily with people who are struggling with serious mental health problems, today's conversation is challenging on many levels. In truth, this show almost didn't happen. I, like most in my profession, work off the premise that the impacts of early childhood trauma often last well into adulthood. The field of psychology has largely embraced the ideas of toxic stress and complex PTSD as fundamental truths, and the majority of our treatment approaches take for granted that the human mind can be structurally altered by an early exposure to prolonged stress. But what if you woke up one day and discovered that these fundamental beliefs were based on little scientific evidence and that in reality, were just an effective marketing campaign by a small number of trauma experts, and that these same experts were using these ideas to shape public policy in education and mental health care. Well, my guest today is making just that claim. Dr. Michael Scaringa is a tenured professor at Tulane University School of Medicine as an endowed chair and the vice president of research. He has been a practicing clinician and, re and researcher for over 28 years. As the principal investigator, Dr. Skiringa has led five federally, federally funded research projects on the topic of PTSD in children and adolescents. Today's conversation is not only about his views on childhood trauma and the impacts of stress on brain development, it's also about how we as humans come to believe what we believe. So please open your mind and suspend what you think you know as we visit with Dr. Michael Skiringa to discuss his new book, The Trouble with Trauma. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Um, before, right before we got on the air, I, I asked Dr. Skaringa if uh, if he'd gotten the talking points, and he said no; those had not come through. So he really is sort of uh, flying blind, so to speak. And um, I generally like to make up my my own questions rather than take the ones from uh, the press releases when I get books. So um, some of these things will be. Hopefully not too much of a curveball. It's all sort of the same stuff, but maybe in a different order or different form. But um, we will we will get through it. I need to uh, just take a second to remind people that we value listener participation. If you have a question for Dr. Skaringa or a comment about today's topic, there are three ways you can connect with us. If you're in the Anchorage area, our phone number is 907-550-8433. If you're listening outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to join us is to email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. We will do our best to get your questions on the air. All right, uh, Dr. Skiringa, I'm sure that you receive a lot of the same sort of um I don't know, response that I had um, when I started reading this book and got deeper into it. I was like, wow, this sort of challenges kind of everything that has been taught to me for many, many, many years. Um, and then I did some research. I was like, is this a one-off? And then I started Googling complex trauma, I mean, complex PTSD and toxic stress. And it 
turns out that you are not the only voice uh, who is sort of challenging some of these wide-held beliefs um, or just taking this as truth. So can you tell us briefly about your background and how you came to this place uh, where you decided to sort of take on and raise some questions about these widely accepted narratives around these issues? Yeah, I actually like your introduction of me because I used to believe them too. I've done some of the the research that I debunk. Um, I've apologized for some of the things I've published. Uh, I think you know, I've been studying trauma my whole career, PTSD, particularly in very young children. I've been doing it for over 29 years now. And I wanted to believe these things. I got studies funded to try to prove that trauma changes neurobiology and get people to pay more attention to trauma and all. But then, uh, you know, and as always, as, as a scientist, you're, you try to be conservative and you say, well, maybe this is true, maybe it's not. But then around 2005, I started hearing my colleagues and people say with absolute certainty that they knew that trauma permanently changes people's brains, what we call the toxic stress theory, and promoted this disorder, complex PTSD, that has no, none of the basic diagnostic validation behind it. And I thought, well, maybe they're just, you know, super enthusiastic about <laughs> things. And, it, and then I dug deeper into it, and I realized that is, is deeper than that, that they're using this to promote social agenda. They're getting laws passed all over the country. Programs are being funded with taxpayer dollars all over the country. And they're, what I call it is, is leveraging, or you know, maybe the first modern example of weaponizing neuroscience. And, and this is what concerned me, and basically why I wrote the book, is um, realizing that things have, that started out humanitarian with good intentions in this modern world has, has gone pretty sideways. Yeah, and just like you said that this book, you said it in a number of spots in the book. I read the book all the way through and then went back through most of it again because uh, the more I read, um, just the more questions I kind of had. And it is hard to write a book that takes on um, all of these widely held beliefs and, and cites lots and lots of research. But if you can tell us, like, what was the one thing that in doing your your initial questioning, like that really stood out to you as the reason why this these beliefs are should be challenged or not necessarily just taken as fact. Was there something that sort of tipped that for you in the research? In the research, I would say it's this distinction about the type of research um, that's done particularly people's huge enthusiasm for what's called the adverse childhood experiences or ACE phenomena, which if listeners don't know, that's this idea that you can take a survey of 10 childhood experiences you had, whether you've experienced those things, and get a score, and that correlates to adult 
physical diseases in life, like cardiac disease and diabetes. And that sounds extraordinary, but then you realize 100% of those studies are cross-sectional, which means they were people were only studied at one point in time as adults. And that, that kind of shocked me. I mean, I was willing to believe ACEs, but it had to be based on prospective longitudinal studies, you know, followed people from early childhood. Because you have to be able to show that they don't have these, you know, diseases and, and all these bad things, and then they've experienced trauma and stress, and that's what caused the things. If you only do a cross-sectional study that's asking about things that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, you, it's, you can't prove causation. It's like, it's like that old saying, you know, correlation is not causation. Right. And I didn't know that. Uh, I think maybe we lost our connection. Um, I will say that that was, well, we're waiting to try to reconnect. I, I will say that that was the, the one thing that really triggered, um, in my mind, sort of an acceptance of opening up my mind to the possibility that some of what, uh, Dr. Skaringa was, was writing about was possibly quite true. These cross-sectional, um, studies that look at a point in time, uh, in which they measure, uh, you know, mental health problems and physical health problems based on, uh, exposure to adverse childhood experiences. And there is a direct correlation or yes, correlation, um, which does not equal causation. But if you look at the graph, the more exposures you have to childhood trauma, the more physical and mental health problems, um, you experience as an adult. So that's sort of the, uh, that was sort of the thing that piqued my interest and made me start to like dig deeper into this book. It is a, it's an interesting book and he uses lots of examples. Uh, I'm getting the thumbs up. It sounds like you might be back with us. I am. I don't know what happened there. Yeah, me neither, but it's a, it's a anxiety provoking moment when your guest drops and you have, uh, you know, 50 minutes left in a program um, to, to take all by yourself. Uh, but I will, when you were gone, I was, I was saying that, you know, all, most of my listeners are quite familiar with ACEs because I have discussed that topic lots, right? It is, it is quite an accepted sort of premise. And if you look at the graph, uh, you look at the line between adverse childhood experiences and both emotional and physical problems in adulthood, uh, you see a direct correlation. I mean, there seems to be, it makes sense when I look at it, um, instinctively and intuitively. So, um, but what, like your book digs into, like, what are some of the other possibilities that might explain this correlation if it's not causation? Great question. Uh, I was just going to say there's, there's a, a, a fancy word, a principle uh, of exchangeability that explains these things. And with that, whenever you do a, like a case control study in any field at, where you say, you know, one group is affected by something and it changes them, at the, you have to know at the beginning of the study that the, 
all the participants were equal. They were the same. Right. And that if you swapped people between groups, they were exchangeable and it wouldn't change the groups. But the idea, what happens mostly in trauma research is that the people who end up having the bad outcomes, psychiatric disorders or disparities or physicals, were different before they ever experienced their trauma and stress. They weren't exchangeable with the people who end up with different outcomes. And it, another way of saying it is trauma doesn't happen at random. Trauma and bad life things happen to people who are living in situations where bad things are more likely to happen. And they have parents who had more dysfunctions or disorders, and they pass those genes on to their children. And they have, you know, they could, they could explain that bad things happen to these people because of the genes they got. And the, the people don't like that message. Right. That's a tough one to swallow. People aren't born equal. People don't like that message. But if you think of it in terms of other things that are less less um, provocative, you know, like musical ability. Some people are born with musical talent. Some aren't. Some people are born with curly hair. Some aren't. Why, when we start talking about psychological things, does it suddenly become off limits to say that people aren't born equal? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important to make a distinction that when you say equal, you're not talking about in their value or in their humanity or in yeah their worth as as human beings because um, in you know from that perspective certainly um, everyone is equally important. What you're talking about is equal in skills, vulnerabilities. Some people are vulnerable to heart disease. Some people are vulnerable to addiction. We know that uh, genetics are strong, and these are sort of some of the ideas that both are unsettling and then to me as a helping professional and then also sort of illuminate some more questions for me around like in my own practice and in my own observations I see lots of family lineage and legacy of severe anxiety or severe depression um, or mood instability you know there's there seems to be just like physical traits, like how somebody walks, the eye color, hair, balding patterns, like all these things. And your point that why should psychological um, manifestations and, and tendencies uh, be any different than heart disease or a, a breast cancer or any of these diabetes, right, is another one. And it seems more accepted in the physical realm than it does um, in the mental health realm. So that sort of really got me uh, sort of questioning this or opening my mind to some of these possibilities. And we're going to get more into, like, what does all this mean um, from a practice standpoint? But I did have a, a, an email, uh, one question asked, and I think you answered it. But to your knowledge, are there any longitudinal studies to test the these ACE uh, studies these ACEs hypothesis? Not so much to test ACE because the stressors of ACE are those 10 items and people just, that would be a really 
difficult study to conduct. Right. There are <laughs> there are 25 studies now that can test the trauma effect of toxic stress. And you know, just to be clear, trauma is a is narrower than ACEs. Trauma is life-threatening experiences. ACEs include some things that are trauma, um, but some things that are just stress and are not life-threatening. And of these 25 studies, I actually published a literature review of them in 2021. Hardly any of them can support the toxic stress theory. There's, there's, there's 25, I say, that can test the, the alternative theory, that what we call the diathesis stress theory, that have studied people's neurobiology before trauma and then measured their PTSD afterward. To test the toxic stress theory longitudinally, you have to test their neurobiology before trauma wait for trauma to happen, and then test the neurobiology a second time. And there's only nine of those studies. Three of them support toxic, no, there's 10 of them. Three of them support toxic stress, seven of them do not. So there's really not strong support and there's, there's more consistent negative findings about toxic stress. Okay, so toxic stress is something that um, if you Google it, you get lots and lots of information that um, sounds like fact. I don't know if you got my talking points, but I'm going to just when I Googled it, I went to a website from the Texas Children's Hospital, which would, you know, I would assume they would have some reliable information there. Um, and what are the consequences of toxic stress? And I'll just read. The result of this extended stress response is that a child's nervous system, immune system, and even DNA are changed. Toxic stress causes the fear centers of the brain, limbic system, and amygdala to significantly increase in size, and the child can develop symptoms very similar to PTSD. Toxic stress decreases the size and impairs the functioning of the regions of the brain responsible for learning, memory, executive functioning, uh, that's the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. As a result, the child is placed at risk for having learning and behavior problems. The child's immune system is suppressed and puts the child at risk for developing a variety of chronic lifelong health conditions. So, um, it, like when you read that, it says, I mean, that is a statement of fact, the result of extended stress. So is there evidence to back that up? When you hear that statement, what, what comes to mind for you? That there are hundreds of studies that show that people who have post-traumatic stress disorder can show those things that you just listed. The question is how they got there and what toxic stress says trauma caused all of them. What I'm saying is an alternative theory like diathesis stress that people were born with those vulnerabilities. Um, the, and another thing kind of related that you just made me think of is another way to think about this in the bigger picture is if toxic stress is true, it means that humans have been around for thousands, millions of years living with trauma, and nobody's ever suggested that our, our brains were decomposing for thousands of years and, and then being, you know, slowly turned into more and more dysfunctional humans. It wasn't until around 2000, 2005, that a certain small group of researchers started promoting this idea. 
Okay, yeah. I mean, that point, evolutionary-wise, like, it makes sense that the human brain evolved to be able to handle a variety of stresses from, you know, attacks, uh, war, famine, uh, loss of loved ones, childhood trauma. Like, it, it's very—we talk a lot about resilience in children, and so it seems like it's, you know, it's a two— pronged approach we want to talk about the resilience of the human mind and how it can handle stress and recover and then we talk about these permanent changes um i do have a, a couple of phone calls i want to get to but we are already at our our 20 minute break so if you're just joining us my guest today is dr michael scaringa who is discussing his belief that the ideas of toxic stress and complex ptsd are not based in fact and are instead ideas that have taken root based on the human brain being a belief machine that is vulnerable to clever marketing and groupthink. He argues that over the last 10 to 15 years, a group of scientists have decreed without validated evidence that toxic stress is part of a disorder in children and have used this concept to advocate for funding to support the ideas that they the idea that they are permanently damaged by trauma. If you have a question for Dr. Skaringa or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our Anchorage phone number is 907-550-8433. We can be reached toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. last way to get your question to us is to email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. After a short break, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Michael Skaringa. I'm Prentice Pemberton. You're listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong, ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I am your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Dr. Michael Skaringa, uh, who is discussing his new book, The Trouble with Trauma, which looks at the ideas that toxic stress and complex PTSD are not based in fact, or are instead ideas that have been that have sort of taken root based on the human brain being a belief machine that is vulnerable to clever marketing and group think. Um, if you'd like to uh, get on the air with us, if you have a question for Dr. Skaringa or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our email is line1 at alaskapublic.org. 
You can reach us in Anchorage at 907-550-8433, and our toll-free number is 1-888-353-5752. All right, uh, I do have uh, some phone calls rolling in, so I'm going to take them uh, in order. We have uh, Chris, uh, you have a question in Anchorage. Uh, You have a question for us here today? Yeah, hi, good morning. Uh, My question is, in regards to ACEs, how do epigenetics play in or do they play in to adverse outcomes later on in life? And I could take my question off the air. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Skaringa, you got thoughts on epigenetics? Yeah, that's what the usual mechanism that people talk about of how this damage is done to the brain is by cortisol. But uh, the more recent one is epigenetics. And that's another alternative way people say. What that means is things like, uh, it usually means methylation, that you have your DNA and methyl groups can attach to it or detach from it, and that can change the way the DNA is expressed. There's um, even less evidence to support that epigenetics um, is related to changes from stress than cortisol has been. Um, and epigenetics is, is also difficult to wrap your head around because it, it's such a black box. I mean, people don't know exactly what the methylation or demethylations really do. Um, but it sounds pretty scary. It says it changes your DNA. Um, and, and the studies are inconsistent. I mean, there are some studies that have been looking at trauma participants with PTSD and, and things like methylation. And sometimes there's more methylation in people with PTSD, and sometimes there's less methylation. And it's not very consistent. It's, it's, it doesn't have any traction, in, in my opinion, um, to explain things any better than cortisol did. All right, uh, Christina in Fairbanks, you have a question uh, for Dr. Skaringa. Go ahead. Hi, um, thanks for being on the show and forwarding the conversation about trauma. Um, I had a couple of points that I guess are kind of questions for you to address. One is that um, although I think that as the story of trauma and the story of ACEs has entered the public discourse, the science has been dumbed down and simplified in a way that does a disservice to all of us. Um, but I have never, ever heard a, a very knowledgeable person claim that there is not a contribution to outcomes from pre-existing sort of conditions of the body um, or genetic influence or on temperament, for example. We know that um, the same events does not affect different individuals in the same way, and that there are contributions made by um, that person's pre- other exposures as well as their their biology. So, like, some small children are more prone to an outcome of PTSD symptoms following a traumatic event than other children, um, even at a very young age. So I guess I would ask um, Dr. Sharinga a little bit about you know, um, 
the, the situation is far more complex than it might be said in public discourse. At the same time, that public discourse is galvanizing resources for the most vulnerable people in our society, people who have been um, ignored, like very small children and people living in chronic environmental stress. And, um, you know, to, to say that our, um, our humanity has encountered trauma throughout the eons um, and, you know, their brain, the assertion that brains are turning to mush in some way um, is, is actually not true. I mean, the body and the brain are adapted to encounter stress and to uh, be resilient within that. Um, I think what people are saying is that in the environment of evolutional, evolutionary adaptation, um, we weren't seeing some of these, um, these conditions of uh, stress that we are seeing now in a more modern um, context. And the body and brain are adapted to a paleolithic um, life, and, um, and that's not the life we live. So the traumas and stresses we encounter now are necessarily going to, you know, stretch the adaptability of our bodies and brains when it comes to stress um, in ways that maybe did not happen in the past, you know, and yet have real outcomes in people with lived experiences and health and well-being. All right, Christine, I'm... I'm answer off the air. Thank you. I'm losing you, but thank you for that. And you... I mean, uh, Dr. Skaringa, that speaks to a lot of what you write about in the book, um, some of her statements and, and questions. Can you, you have a comment for Christina? Yeah, thank you, Christina. You added a lot of nuance to the discussion there. Um, I think the first point you made is about how uh, it's more complicated than sometimes we talk about and that proponents who support toxic stress might also agree that there's genetic contributions, what's called the gene-environment interactions is usually what they say. However, that they still say that there's a big trauma contribution, even though they may admit there's a genetic underpinning. But I'm just addressing the trauma part of it because that's the part that they're, they're leveraging for what they're trying to do. And, you know, All right, we're, we're getting a bad connection uh, with, with Dr. Skaringa, so um, we're going to call him back and, and try to reconnect. But I think um, she made a lot of really valuable points, and one of the the points that Dr. Skaringa makes in this uh, in the book was that a lot of the, I don't know, the push for complex PTSD and toxic stress and to get funding for that and to, you know, validate these ideas. Um, we have to remember that uh, complex PTSD was rejected twice uh, by the DSM, um, the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders. It was rejected twice uh, when it was tried to to become its own new diagnosis because of a lack of evidence. So um, are you back with us? I, I am. All right, that's better. Um, 
I was just speaking to the I fact. Can, it, it stress, yeah, I could continue addressing. Yeah, go ahead. Because she made another, I think, really interesting point where as I think it was her second point saying that this, that these, this efforts, these efforts around toxic stress and all and ACEs are galvanizing resources yeah. for disadvantaged people. And that is almost the key message of the whole thing is that if somebody doesn't like the science, it kind of pulls out this moral card, like how can I be against helping disadvantaged people? By, and that's, that's how they've been so successful. This is really not about science at the end of the day. It's about morality and people doing these things. They're, these are humanitarian, well-intentioned, smart people that are and just like, you know, I am when I decided to go into this field, but they're trying to get help for people who are disadvantaged, and they've discovered that this is a way to get it, even though the science is not true for it. And you can do all these programs based on toxic stress and ACEs, and the problem is they're not going to work because they're not founded on good science, and it's going to end up not helping the disadvantaged people. Right, and that is one of the, the points in your book. This is not to say that helping disadvantaged folks or people who have been in you know cycles of poverty uh, for generations, is it's, it's an admirable goal to reach out to those people. But what your point is is that if the interventions are not based on good science, then maybe we're trying to do the wrong thing. Right. Uh, California, usually California is taking the lead. They have a $40 million program that started a year or two ago to screen children for ACEs in pediatric clinic visits. And the, somehow screening for them is going to reduce adverse experiences and all these bad outcomes. But it's not going to work. That $40 million could have been spent on something more productive. Okay, uh, another phone call. Lorraine, you have a question about uh, stress for preemie babies. Um, yes, this is Lorraine, and um, thank you for taking my call. And I missed the first part of the program, so if this isn't an appropriate um, question, just let me know. I am wondering in the ASA scoring, and I, and I, that's part of the discussion, but they don't include anything um, such as premature birth and Premature babies are under constant stress, especially those that are considered the very, very premature, the 24, 25, 26 weekers. And when I've asked the question at conferences, there seems to be sort of a lack of, of um, maybe research that how it affects them as they get older. It, there's a lot of stuff that's done to them when they're, you know, before they get to school and maybe when they're in the elementary grades. But it seems like as life goes on, the prematurity thing goes away, but really they've been under so much stress for so many months. Um, can you just sort of address that or maybe, I don't know, elaborate on that? <laughs> All right, Lorraine, is that, I mean, that's a great question about the impacts of uh, premature birth. Um, it's a little off topic as far as like what we're addressing, but that's, but well, not really, because it is one of those things that people would say those early lifetime exposures to that stress um, would have an impact on their health and wellness as an adult. Is there any validity to that? 
I think it does, in a way, kind of actually um, address what we're talking about because the, the the other issue for prematures is their actual neural development is is not at the stage it would be if they had been born irregular. So when you see adverse outcomes for them, you'd say, well, is it because of the you know the hardwiring, the neural development, the physical development that wasn't allowed to happen with a full gestation, right? Or was it the psychological stress? And it seems like it's probably more likely the the hardwiring, neurological development that didn't get a chance to finish its job in the in the utero. And it's that exchangeability issue again. They're they weren't born uh, this equal or with the same right. neural development as, as humans. So, yeah. Okay, well, that leads us right into our next caller. David, um, you have uh, thoughts about human development. Uh, you're on line one. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I hope it's not going to be repetitive because it, I wasn't able to actually hear well the crackling and everything. But I had two points about the evolutionary um, explanation that Dr. Gibbs um, one is if it is the case that people would have developed uh, or wouldn't would have not developed properly because of uh, stresses in ancient times, they becoming worse and worse humans. Wouldn't that still be uh, the opposite direction? And that how would you explain the um, lack of the ability in the genetics today if it wasn't through evolution? The other question I have is. How can you compare the stresses you get today with the stresses of thousands of years ago? That's a great question. I don't understand. The, I, I don't understand the first question. Okay. You, uh, David, you still with us? Can you repeat the first question? Okay. Um, evolutionarily, you can evolve to a point where you have the genes that he's talking about, where you're just born born with them, or um, you can say that. Uh, through evolution, um, it can't be the case that uh, you uh, your genes get changed by stress because we become worse and worse humans. Oh, yeah. My question is, can't you just say the opposite? How is it then that we have the bad genes in the first place if it wasn't evolution as well? So you can make an argument, evolutionary argument for both directions. I got gotcha. you. Um, Dr. Skaringa? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still not sure I'm quite addressing, but you could, you could say, I think he's saying that all humans may have vulnerable genes for bad outcomes, and I'm saying they're not. I think there's, there's people are all people are different. Some people have genetic vulnerabilities for bad outcomes, some don't, and some have all different ones. That it's not that evolution had this mass similar effect. On everybody, um, but I'm still not sure I'm I'm understanding that. But I do understand the second one, um, um, the idea. I think it's the second caller saying that the stressors of the ancient past are different from the stressors today, and that today's stressors are somehow worse, and then somehow toxic stress is now more relevant. I would say. If anything, it's the opposite. Uh, if anything, although I don't know, I wasn't alive millions of years ago, uh, is that trauma was probably 
uh, more part of people's lives. We don't. You lived in out in in nature. You had to fight for your survival every day. You had to fight for your food supply, your security, your safety from bad weather, predators. If any, and and you had injuries and and accidents with no great medical care. You could argue that the traumas were more severe in ancient past than they are today. I think today's are just a different nature and maybe more complicated. Yeah, and I think the the first part of his question was speaking to like that if these vulnerabilities like if if they were a result of early childhood trauma then many of our brains would be degrading more and more and we would be getting less resilient as humans and more like challenged emotionally and physically um so he was making that argument i think there is um there's a lot of this is as i said this is a hard book to write and it's a hard conversation to have because there is so many like preconceived beliefs and notions um about this stuff and we have we're at our second break so i'm gonna have to go ahead and and take a quick break my guest today if you're just tuning in my guest today is dr michael scaringa who is discussing his belief that the ideas of toxic stress and complex PTSD, PTSD are not based in fact, but are instead ideas that have taken root based on the human brain being a belief machine that is vulnerable to clever marketing and groupthink. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the rest of his book for the last 20 minutes because we could get bogged down in this Um conversation for several hours i think but uh after this short break we will continue with more of our conversation with dr michael skaringa i'm prentice pemberton you're listening to line one your health connection on alaska public media you're listening to line one from alaska public media you can find line one on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts the Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. The Alaska Travel Industry Association provides leadership and guidance to Alaska's tourism businesses for how to operate safely across the state. Members can access updated industry resources related to COVID-19 at alaskatia.org. This message sponsored by ATIA. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I am your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning in, my guest today is Dr. Michael Skaringa. We are talking about his new book, The Trouble with Trauma, um, which talks about toxic stress, complex PTSD, and the idea that uh, maybe these these ideas are not as factual as we have come to believe. Um, if you have a question for Dr. Skaringa or a comment about today's topic, you can give us a call at 907-550-8433. That's in Anchorage. Uh, our toll-free number is 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to participate is by emailing your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. Um, all right, Dr. Skaringa, your argument is not that we are we should not help people. Your argument is really that we need to make sure that what we are doing is the best for, uh, it would address the actual problem. Um, 
And my email, I got an email that says, you mentioned doing the wrong thing based on poor science. Uh, my emailer says, I suggest we are doing uh, what we we are doing may indeed be the right thing, but poorly targeted, thus wasting resources on some sufferers while getting good results for other. I opine that some sufferers are suffers a valid are valid per the conversation flawed science but by far not all not sure i quite understand that but he's saying that we are pumping a lot of resources into um into a lot of folks based on this science but is there any research that outcome-based research that shows us that our interventions are effective um, based on the policies that we're making off of this information? Um, no. We can talk about multiple different areas. We can talk, about, again, about the California ACES screening program. There's um, no evidence that asking a question about uh, whether your parent has a mental illness at a pediatric well-child visit does anything to change that parent's mental illness. I mean, when you have a screening program, it needs to be designed so that the thing you're screening about, there's actually some action you can take for it. Um, we can talk about, um, let's say, Baltimore. That's one of the incidents I talk about in the book where they had race riots after the death of an African-American man in police custody in 2015, and they used that to leverage all sorts of new funding and social programs around trauma. Would anybody argue that Baltimore is in a much better shape these days because of that than in 2015? I think that'd be a very difficult case to make. Um, we can talk about the courts. The Florida court system in particular is trying to implement what's called trauma-informed approaches. Right. There's no evidence gathered that outcomes for juvenile delinquents have improved or violence has been prevented because of this. It, it feels good to do these things, and I think that's the point. It makes us all feel better, but the evidence isn't there that they work. Um, all right. I have, uh, well, there's a lot of information to cover, and we're not going to get to it all. Um, I do want to read one more email. It says, in parts of Alaska, we have food insecurities because of remote locations, hunger triggers trauma, and also early neglect on f or food insecurities. Our parents do their best to feed us, but it was sometimes not enough. So today we tend to be frugal, even though there is food security. Uh, anyway, this is an example. So um, is that sort of a, I mean, that's not a PTSD response. Is it the food um, insecurity? I mean, what's the, you believe in PTSD, right? Like post-traumatic stress disorder? Yes. Yeah. Um, as a result of a life-threatening, intense, traumatic event. Right. And certainly there are childhood um, experiences that would qualify pe for people as, PTSD, for p as having PTSD. And one of the interesting things is that one of the reasons that um, C, like complex PTSD was rejected by the DSM-5 uh, is because that 92% of, uh, if I was, if I'm remembering it correctly, 92% would qualify as PTSD. So there's not a significant difference. Right. That was the big case why it was rejected by the 
the DSM-4 with that finding. Um, and I think, the f f yeah, go ahead. Um, I was just going to get into another part of the book, because a lot of the book is not necessarily about this topic, and we only have 10 minutes left to really uh, get through it, but it's also on the how we come to believe the things that we believe. And can, so you talk briefly about the human brain and um, the idea of heuristics and like how we are vulnerable to these sorts of like in Ponzi schemes you mentioned, Elizabeth Holmes. Um, can you talk just briefly about some of that uh, information that you have in the book? Right. Probably half almost half the book probably yeah. is trying to explain the, the more generalizable phenomena of, of why we believe things that aren't true. And I use examples like you said about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, why we get sucked into a Bernie Monaf Ponzi scheme, why the Bush administration was able to convince America that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and other you know examples that people are familiar with. And I think uh, it's a complicated story, like like you've said so well. It's it's a tough story to write about and talk about because the human mind is so complicated. Um, but I would I think I'd sum it up in, in one way as this way is that what happens to all of us in, every day we have to ask ourselves and we do because we're moral people. Am I good enough? Am I a good enough person? Can I be a better person? And we have to answer that every day. We, we often don't know we're doing it because it's such an unconscious part of our mind. But the ways we have to answer that are by our moral behaviors. That morality is our superpower in the animal kingdom. And there's more than one way to be moral. Um, Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist who's come up with a really nice moral foundations theory that says there's probably six general ways of being moral. Only one of them is about caring for disadvantaged people. Others are respect for authority, respect for tradition, patriotism, uh, respect for sanctity of the body, and so forth. So when you have to answer that question about yourself every day and you have a broad moral foundation, you have lots of different ways that you can answer that question and make yourself feel good and say, okay, <laughs> I'm going to go out the front door and, and keep trying at this. If, the, if you're skewed in morality and the, the one foundation you care most about, most intensely or maybe only about, is care for the disadvantaged victims of the world, that's the only way you have to answer that question for yourself every day. So you're going to fight any way you can for things that help disadvantaged people. And I think that goes a long way to explain, you know, people are maybe listening or wondering like, well, well, who are these people? How do I explain these people that I'm, I'm arguing with? And that's how I would explain it. Again, people are born different. People are born with different moral foundations. These are really caring people. And when you have a belief that you need to convince yourself every day, you find the facts that support your belief. And I think that's what's been going on. All right. One of the, the things in the book that gave me pause was this idea, like, I mean, I have three children. They are vastly different despite being raised in the same home. Um, you mentioned a friend that you spoke to whose uh, brother was sort of a ne'er-do-well and, and not a very nice person and, and talked about the mother or the parenting and if his parents had been, you know, stricter or... Uh, 
I guess had more structure with him, he might have turned out to be a better person. And but the parenting from child to child is not generally that radically different. Um, and certainly, a lot of the research says like we have to parent our our children based on their character and how they're born. But one of the premises that this book really highlighted for me was like many people are born with uh, a personality traits or tendencies, temperament. And that parenting can maybe mold that somewhat, but it's not going to generally fundamentally change your core, who you are at your core. Can you speak about like how we have sort of created this mother blaming? Um, everything goes back to mom, right? I mean, like, oh, it's your mother's fault. Um, and, and how we've created that and why that's not very helpful as far as uh, like as a society and certainly not to mothers. That's an even tougher one to talk about because even mothers want to blame themselves because <laughs> things. It's just such a, a knee-jerk reaction when things go wrong with children to try to find a reason for it. Um, that's just another one of the tenets of our modern world is to think that parents can mold children. But I think the distinction needs to be made clearly, and I, th I think you 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 kind of made it. Is there are some things, the hardwired developmental things, of like when a child walks and talks and their basic fundamental character, like whether they're an extrovert or introvert, those are pretty hardwired. But there's all sorts of other things that parents can influence, like culture and manners and interests and hobbies and expose them to things to self in life and keep them well-fed and loved. Parents have their plates full with all sorts of useful things they can do, but it's important to keep the distinction of the things they can't do. I think, I mean, I, th I think you said you're a clinician. I think if you've just seen one family where a child is, is a true sociopath and the other siblings are not, you realize parents didn't do that. And parents are not <laughs> as powerful as some people say they are. Yeah, I think that that's an important takeaway um, for me because I spend a lot of time with um, I work with both teenagers and adults. And a lot of the, the parents I work with when when kids, you know, get involved with drugs or they are, you know, become abusive to their families, they think, what did I do wrong? And, you know, if we accept the premise of you know, like uh, complex PTSD or toxic stress, then, you know, the only logical conclusion is that what did the parents do wrong? Um, you have to go back and look at the primary uh, caregivers in that, you know, the parents are responsible for shaping this. But I think, I mean, what is the importance of it? You're not saying that parenting doesn't matter. There are lots of things that we can do um, as parents and, and, What's the, I think, the takeaway as far as, like, what do parents need to feel responsible for or uh, and, and what they don't, what do they not feel responsible for? I think a big one, I mean, it's a lot of things, but I think a big one that comes up in our work is is empathy and, and caring about the feelings of others. Um, I don't think parents have a huge impact on that. That's kind of like extroverts and introverts, and you're kind of, that's either installed in you or it's not, and it's very hard to teach that one, as you can, we can see with the criminals. And when that happens,
happens for parents, they shouldn't blame themselves. They shouldn't beat themselves up. And that will help them find alternative strategies that are, A, more likely to work, and B, um, less, uh, less of a way to beat themselves up for things they didn't cause. All right. Um, well, I want to uh, – we're kind of losing our connection again a little bit. Um, I did want to get to – well, I think we're sort of running out of time, so hopefully – if you can give us some, I guess, the last final thoughts um, is to see, like, what you think, uh, why, why people would want to read this book. I think it's, uh, it's, if you're interested in trauma, it explains some of these myths in detail that's understandable for lay people and has the science there if you want to get into that. It's also a story about how the human mind works, if you're at all interested in that. We, I talk a lot about other people's work in psychology, social psychology, evolutionary psychology. It helps flesh those things out. And lastly, it's important for what's coming. I mean, like I said, laws are being passed all over the country. If they're not in your town now, they will be. It's the, it's the new way to leverage social programs in this country all right uh we are at the end of our program so i want to uh want to thank you dr Skaringa, for uh taking the time to join us it's i think it's always really important to question what we think we know and to to challenge what our beliefs and i think that's what um this book was all about so i appreciate your time thank you so much thank you appreciate it all right. Um, I do want to say that uh, the book is full of really, it, it's a very interesting book and it's an interesting read. I went through it twice. Um, I would encourage folks who are more interested. It's a hard conversation to have in an hour because it is a complex um, book and, and a lot of interesting ideas. So uh, that's um, The Trouble with Trauma, How Search to Discover How Beliefs Become Facts. My thanks uh, to Line One producer Adeline Baxter for all her work on today's show and for Tobin Shelby for always making things work. For all of us at Line One, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Until next time, I'm Prentice Pemberton. Have a great day, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.